the Good Mood Podcast. My name is Dr. Talia Markajani, and I am a naturopathic doctor with a focus in mental health, hormones, mood, digestion. And this is episode 59, Raising Healthy Kids with my friend Nicholas Hundley, who is a nutritional biochemist. And in this podcast, Nick and I discuss, well, we start off by discussing healing philosophy, mental health in the brain, the subconscious mind, and all these good things. And then we move on to nutrition, which is the main topic that I wanted to discuss with Nick, and how to raise a healthy family. And this is because Nick's focus right now is coaching families transition from the standard American diet to more holistically healthy, whole foods lifestyle. And this is so interesting to me because I have so many patients who come in for help, you know, whether that be the, like the head of the household or one of the adults in the household, or maybe the teenager or the, or the child in the household. And each person comes in as an individual and maybe individually they're set on their own personal transformation only to succumb to, you know, especially if they're the primary caregiver, the overwhelm of making three separate meals, you know, keeping their kids on one sort of diet, their partner on another, and then another one for themselves with the lifestyle changes that we've been working towards. And this is often a losing battle because often our families don't really get what we're trying to do with our health and we find ourselves alone and completely overwhelmed. And this is unfortunate because good health starts from childhood and we have a unique opportunity to set kids up for healthy lives, um, you know, as adults by teaching them about nutrition, honing their palates, which means teaching them how to appreciate healthy foods, bitter tastes and a variety of tastes and helping them learn about their bodies and minds and what they can start doing to feel empowered in their own health. And often when one person is trying to transform, it could be really helpful for the whole family to get on board. And so Nick and I talk about how he coaches families to improve their nutritional habits. He has four children of his own and he had his own health issues and he didn't want to see them succumb to health issues that many health practitioners may have just labeled as genetic. And what he's found is that he had great success in raising four really healthy kids. And so giving your family the gift of good health is one of the best things I believe you can do to bestow them with. And Nick was really determined to do this for his family. And a lot of questions came up for me. I really wanted to just pick his brain on how he helps convince kids to get on board with a family health transformation and what to do about picky eaters, how to support families, especially if there's one parent who's dragging their heels, (laughs) how to support families in making tweaks to diet, how to avoid shame, which I find sometimes nutrition in kids can be a touchy subject um, because most families are just trying to get by and picky eating can be a real obstacle when it comes to time management, meal planning, and all of that and how we can encourage everyone to get on board and excited about eating well. So we cover all these topics and more. It's a great discussion. Apologies ahead of time. The audio is a little bit quiet. On Nick's end, I think it's just the remote audio. So we've been doing Zoom and he's also located in Utah. Um, But hopefully you can still enjoy the episode and get some great content and information and inspiration out of it. 
And Nick is a nutritionist and biochemist. He's also working towards a degree as a nurse practitioner, and he's a mental health practitioner with a focus and special interest in mental health. I met him at the Integrative Medicine for Mental Health Conference in San Diego in 2019. He did run a website called MindWhale, which still has some articles up at mindwell.com, but you can find him now on Instagram, but also at his new website, nicholashunley.com, and the link is in the show notes um, if you're interested. And if this interest in nutrition and mental health is piquing your interest, or if this topic is piquing your interest, sorry, you want to learn more about nutrition for mental health and how to support your body and mind using four key components to healthy eating for mental health. I encourage you to check out my four-week course called Feed Your Head. You get all the information up front as soon as you sign up for the course, so it doesn't meter out in four weeks, but it's designed to be a four-week program, and it's $34. Um, you can go to the link in the show notes to check it out and to join, and you get lifetime access if you do so. Without further ado, here are Nick and I discussing how to raise a healthy family. So welcome, Nick. Hey, Thalia. Yeah. So good to see you again. Yeah, good to see you again. Yeah, we met in the IMMH, the Integrative Mental Health, Integrative yeah. Medicine for Mental Health <laughs> Conference in 2019. Mm-hmm. And yeah, seeing you again gives me all these flashbacks at that amazing conference. Yeah, I know. Yeah, last year was just online. Obviously, it was 2020. And then this year, apparently it's live again. Um, oh, wow. I don't know if you're, yeah, you're not planning on going. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're busy. So <laughs> yeah, maybe. Gone, I think I've gone to three or four of those and they're great. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, I'm just kind of most of the grindstone of everything I'm doing right now. Yeah. So maybe you can introduce yourself and what you're up to right now because you're in, into something really interesting at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, right now, I am focusing on helping families get healthier transition to a healthier lifestyle. I try to do it in a way that's easy and painless and quick. Um, And I'm passionate about that because of my own journey of trying to figure out healthy lifestyle. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And I focus on families because I have four kids and um, you know, I've watched them grow up. Um, They're 18, 15, 10 and eight right now. Um, And so, you know, it's, it's, I've watched them and I've been very um, conscientious as a father to try to get them to develop in all ways, in a healthy way, mm-hmm. uh, mentally, emotionally, and physically and everything. Um, and, you know, being in, having been a nutritionist for years and studying biochemistry and being in the medical field, I'm like also very conscientious about what they're eating. Are they getting enough nutrients? And you know, I'm that dad that's chasing them around with a spoon of cod liver oil. Right? <laughs> yeah. Eat it. Um, it's like, it tastes like lemons. Yeah. What's that? It tastes like lemons. Please, yeah. I swear. <laughs> <laughs> no, they finally get to a point where they just like surrender to it. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. there's no getting away from this crazy dad, you know? Yeah. Um, so, <clears throat> but the reason I'm so interested in that is because, you know, the more I've studied it, the more. I realize how important um, nutrition and avoiding toxins and other things are for the development of children. 
Mm. And um, so that's why I do what I do. Um, and I have a website, blog, um, mindwhale.com, where it's probably a little bit more geeky in the scientific realm. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> talking about everything from hormones to, um, you know, micronutrients and gut flora and stuff um, as it relates to mental health. Mm-hmm. But also um, having to do with mindfulness and meditation. So there's very much like that mm-hmm. psychological and spiritual component to it. Um, and that's that's the interesting and complex thing about mental health is it really is the epicenter of so many different inputs. Mm-hmm. As you're well aware, nutrition is super important. And then you have a social environment, traumas, um thought patterns spirituality it's like it's really like how we feel and how we behave is it's such a complex system Mm -hmm. yeah our brain is so complex Mm -hmm. and it's not um and our mind as well is not necessarily contained within our isolated self you know it's an it's a negotiation between us and the environment so you know nutrition can be one inroad to healing mental health, but for someone else, it might be mindfulness or working on relationships, um, mindset things. I have a theory, (laughs) a pet theory right now about the prefrontal cortex. So the part of the brain that, and we'll get into families and nutrition, (laughs) but the, so the prefrontal cortex for the audience, the the part of the brain that essentially like makes decisions for you that probably most people associate with what, with I, with their own conscious mind, with their decision-making rational mind. It's sort of the part of the brain that we focus on in, in cognitive behavior therapy, right? Like our mind controls our emotions, like that kind of thing. So um, if you have anxiety, sort of talking yourself down or calming yourself down with more rational or balanced thoughts. And so my theory is like our prefrontal cortex, when it runs out of energy, our whatever's lying beneath, so our limbic system, our amygdala is now at the forefront. And so you can kind of approach mental health from two avenues. One is to strengthen your prefrontal cortex, like keep it fueled. So it's more, it's online more often, either Mm -hmm. reduce inflammation or keep your, like I'm obsessed with blood sugar. Mm -hmm. And then the other part is to address the contents of the subconscious, right? So it's going to be shaped by trauma, past experience, and, and things like meditation, mindfulness, I think is, it works on both levels because mm-hmm. you get some more agency over your, your actual conscious mind. You can strengthen the, the ability to um, almost like redirect your thoughts or to at least like watch them <clears throat> and, and more awareness of sort of what, what comes up from exactly. the subconscious. Yeah. yeah, I love that. <clears throat> um, yeah, that's such a rich topic, actually. The mm-hmm the dynamic between the prefrontal cortex and the limbic system. Um, It makes me think of Freudian theory with um, ego and um, it, right? So, you know, the limbic system is very emotional, very reactive. It's tied in with memories. Trauma Mm -hmm. is tied in there. And so it's just a very quick reactive, like gut feeling, more corporeal, uh, more connected because it's like at the center, like, of your brain right but it's connected with the rest of the body really intimately Mm -hmm. um and so in like the freudian theory the id 
is that emotional center, like just those raw desires and motives and stuff like that. And it's been um, compared to like a horse, right? So like a horse is this wild, it could be this wild creature, you know, like a wild horse. Um, but the prefrontal cortex is like the rider. So it's, you know, the horse rider. And it's um, there to kind of rein it in, you know what I mean? Um, and so <clears throat> you could have a super wild horse, aka it's like traumatized or it's like um, doesn't have the physiological needs that it doesn't, you know, it's not, they're not being met. And so it's like starving for whatever, for love mm-hmm. or certain nutrients, or there's inflammation in the body making the horse go wild. But then you have the prefrontal cortex that um, is there and it kind of has those connections like reins where they mm-hmm. can kind of soothe the horse and be like, I know you're triggered right now, but you know, all these, this huge audience that you're looking at, they're not going to eat you, you know? <laughs> <laughs> or things like imagine they're all in their underwear, right? You know, so the prefrontal cortex kind of has this logical control over the rest of the, of that. Yeah. So in terms of mental health, that's a huge thing. It's strengthening that prefrontal cortex. And like you said, um, you know, having the nutrients is important and many forms of meditation and mindfulness will directly strengthen that as mm. well. Um, another fascinating thing for me and tying it back to development is, um, you know, ADHD is associated with abnormalities in that functioning of the prefrontal cortex and also other like mood disorders, like depression, and anxiety. Um, but developmentally, one of the biggest associations that they've found in research is, um, you know, iron deficiency or iron deficiency anemia in the mother during pregnancy leads to, you know, less development of that prefrontal cortex in the baby and then higher mm. risk of ADHD mm. and other mood disorders. Um, and again, you know, and then also certain um, plasticizers and neurotoxins in the environment that we need to watch out for. Um, things like PCBs and heavy metals, those are huge. Those really hamper the development of the prefrontal cortex. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, just knowing how to navigate that as a parent and as a soon to be parent is really important because we want our kids to have, you know, biologically, we want them to have that develop correctly. And then of course, at, you know, during pregnancy and after birth, we want them to have those relational, um, those healthy relational mm-hmm. um, inputs and stuff that are going to support that healthy development. So anyway, I don't know if I closed the loop on that whole id ego thing, but the <laughs> ego, and if you could compare it to the the prefrontal cortex, it's you know that's the part that's kind of a little bit more rational, you know, and able to kind of um, you know control the horse maybe with self care, let it go out to pasture sometimes, right? But then mm-hmm. not let it you know run amok and stuff like that. Yeah, like getting yeah, it's like becoming a more skilled rider essentially exactly. learning yeah. how to what is a oh there's a woman called marissa peer that talks about learning how to drive your ferrari like you get handed this ferrari and you're like i have no idea how to drive this properly and so you become more skilled at it it's like how to, to manage the mind but mm-hmm. i probably like people who really know neuroscience would probably think that's very simplified like the prefrontal cortex and the limbic system but i think that's ultimately what a lot of therapy is applying that basic concept 
I'm even thinking of like parts work where you have your parent or your adult self and then your inner child. So you're like, you're healing the inner child. So you're working at the level of trauma and emotion um, and self-compassion and those kind of things. But then you're also attending to the parent or the adult who's Mm. ultimately in charge of like helping you function in life. So, Mm. and I think with nutrition, we can work, you can start, you can address that concept with nutrition, right? Like, especially with blood sugar. And I don't know, I I keep repeating myself about blood sugar because like, Mm. I I always, (laughs) I don't know, I want to like drive it home because blood sugar doesn't sound like such a sexy concept. People are like, yeah, yeah, have a snack often. (laughs) I'm like, no, you don't understand at 4 p.m., when you have that daily depressive episode, that's your blood sugar. <laughs> Let's talk about it, you know? Exactly. Um, yeah. yeah. And the thing that um, I teach clients about that blood sugar concept is it is, it is um, addictive and it's kind of, um, it's tricky because I think we do get happier when we eat sugar. Right. Briefly. right. But that, so there's a spike but then we crash and we're lower. Um, but when we control our blood sugar, we're just at this baseline higher mm. level consistently. Right. And so overall, we're we're much happier. And then we start to learn to get that high from other things besides right. sugar. You know? Right. So the secret, <laughs> the secret to evolution, right, is to well, maybe. Do you mind sharing your story about how you decided? Because when I met you, you were focused on the the mental health side of things. And now you've pivoted, really focusing more on on coaching families. And what was the pull towards that? So you mentioned your family, your kids, and just your understanding, like your direct firsthand experience working with them. Mm-hmm. Um, but why was that uh, relevant? Maybe it was just something you fell into because you had the the experience and the, the competence. No, yeah, it's that's a great question. And- happy to answer it. I am 42 years old and, um, I grew up with anxiety and depression Mm. and, um, and I got interested in nutrition early on just because I was reading my mom's reader's digest and would talk about fiber or something. Like, Oh, that's so cool. (laughs) Um, or supplements. Um, so I got into it, but it was a long journey of going through many different, um, you know, dietary philosophies and stuff like that. I was never overweight, so I wasn't in that, in that rodeo, which can be crazy, Mm -hmm. I know. Mm -hmm. Um, But I did start making this connection between what I ate and how I felt. And I'm kind of, I was going to say I'm a unique case. I'm not really unique because so many people's, um, you know, immune systems are getting messed up because of, you know, environmental things and these developmental things and poor diets and stuff like that. But I kind of had this, I started recognizing this connection between my allergies. Like I had hay fever really bad. I had mild asthma. Um, I had a lot of food sensitivities, but I didn't even know that until my early twenties. But um, I started recognizing that bodily inflammation was affecting the brain. And I was like, no, duh, the brain's part of the body. Mm -hmm. So if the body's inflamed, brain's going to probably be inflamed. And it's going to affect the mood. So brain fog, I see often as, you know, it could be caused by inflammation. Mm-hmm. It's a major cause. But then there's also the micronutrient thing. Like I mentioned the iron. I had anemia as a kid. Mm-hmm. And then I feel like I had ADD. I was never diagnosed. 
you know, that triad of an ABP. Um, I just started making these connections. I got a master's degree in biochemistry, and then I was able to geek out on the deep shit, right? The you know, PubMed stuff and make even more connections. And it's hard to, it's hard to like externalize what you're learning. But then when you read all this stuff, um, for example, like EPA is affecting the development of the hormones and then how the hormones affect the brain. I mean, there's thyroid, there's insulin, there's the whole blood sugar thing. It's so mm. complicated. And there's so many ways that the brain chemistry can be imbalanced. And also, you know, I, I focused heavily on spirituality to try to help myself, um, psychological stuff, did a lot of inner work. And um, basically, you know, I was suffering as a kid and, and as a teenager, and um, it was hard, you know, and I know it's hard for most people. And, um, and point being, you know, when I started having kids, I was like, I'm not... Can I swear on this podcast? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Everyone always asks, I'm like, yeah, you just get, we this just is get a family film. But yeah. Maybe not. Swear. <laughs> yeah. I was like, you know what? These kids are not going to go through that. Like, I'm not hmm. going to let them get asthma, um, allergies. Like, oh, I had digestive issues, you know, IBS, probably some sort of colitis, if we're being honest. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so all these things were happening and I did not want my kids to go through that. And so I was studying, you know, nutrition and health for my kids. And I believe it's made a huge difference. My kids are awesome. They're healthy. They don't have asthma. They're, um, you know, just really well adjusted. And, you know, and I think a lot of that obviously has to do with getting that relational psychological love support. you know, having loving parents, but also, um the physiology it's a huge thing you know blood sugar is just as important for kids as it is for adults like you're mentioning right and so um you know i um and when their mom was pregnant i would you know research about you know the different micronutrients iron um you know zinc selenium even is associated with with stuff um i think about 10% of kids are born either small for gestational age or prematurely. And that, that just being born early is super traumatic. Um, but it also evidences that the child maybe didn't get um, the nutrition that they needed because there are various studies showing correlations between certain dietary patterns, which, you know, hint, hint is not standard Western diet, um, are associated with better, um, birth weight and less preterm delivery um and autism there's all sorts of correlations with environmental health especially detoxification and environmental toxins um, being associated with the development of that as well as add um, and then micronutrient deficiencies and then schizophrenia and psychosis um, psychosis they can prevent you know it's shown a prevention of psychosis in adolescents that are at risk for it they're showing signs of pre-psychosis and for example they gave them fish oil and um that prevented a huge percentage of them developing it and that was with a Mm. with a controlled trial um Mm. and then yeah so there's you know i could go on and on and on about that but so you know omega-3 fatty acids 
for the brain. Um, a lot of people aren't getting it. Our diets are skewed. And so with my kids, that's why I'm chasing them around with cod liver oil. I don't chase them anymore, by the way. Yeah. Now it's like, come get your cod liver oil. You know, I might have to tell them a few times, but they'll come and they'll, I, I just pour it in their mouth. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, the interesting thing too about your story is I'm sure that when you were going through all that, there was just probably this assumption, like in our medical system, you would most likely be told, well, it's just genetic. This is just the hand, the, the, the cards that you're dealt. There's nothing you can do about it. And then you see, you know, with f- four kids, right? So that if it is genetic, that the chances that one of them would be suffering with those things is high, right? If it was just a purely yeah. genetic hand of cards. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think, you know, nutrition is so undervalued in our system. And even just like, I always think of it like, a lot of people get benefit from fish oil and mm. in fish oil, the EPA in it, you know, is just one of the nutrients that the brain requires that we're not getting in our standard American diet or, mm. you know, any variation of the standard American diet. Let's say someone goes keto, you know, but they're usually their, their foundation is the standard American diet. And now they're just tweaking it a little bit as I'm sure you did when you started your journey. I did when I started my journey, I kind of just took one variable and changed it slightly, but it was still sort of, you know, Canada's food guide or whatever you have, USDA, you know, and um, food pyramid or whatever it is. And um, we, so when I think of like all the nutrients that the brain needs, you know, and all of the things beyond EPA, but how much of an effect you can get from just adding one nutrient, Mm -hmm. even isolating something like iron down to improving outcomes, like, you know, in, in the risk of a child developing ADHD, And like, for example, so many of my patients come in low iron and the way that it's framed in their healthcare is, oh yeah, your iron's low. It's always low. Oh, maybe you're you're menstruating, you know, it's normal or you're vegetarian, normal. Here's, you know, a high dose iron to take Mm -hmm. that doesn't get absorbed. And so they're struggling with low iron their whole life. And it's sort of this one of my colleagues and I always joke that iron is sort of like the non-sexy nutrient because everybody's low in iron, but we need iron to make dopamine and dopamine mm-hmm. is essentially, so someone will come in with low energy, low motivation, low libido, low focus, difficulty concentrating. And mm-hmm. so we have all these symptoms that are very significant to how they function, how they, they perceive or enjoy their world. And we can link that to iron you know, mm-hmm. this chronic iron deficiency that they've dealt with. And and so, so part of it too is just like making nutrition exciting, connecting it to someone's experience. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I'm all about the motivation and, you know, knowledge is power. And when people understand what the effects are, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. it becomes self-motivated. It becomes easy. Yeah. It's like, oh, when I eat this way, I feel crappy. Or when I eat this other way, I feel really good. It's no longer like this willpower thing. It's Great. it's like it's just a no brainer. Um, exactly. Um, yeah, and the iron is interesting too because it's not necessarily that the person's not getting enough iron. Mm-hmm. Um, there could be inflammation that's decreasing their ability to absorb the iron that they're eating. So that's the other complicated thing about nutrition. It's not just like add a bunch of nutrients and everything's good. Right. You know, it's, um, it's really decreasing that inflammation, which is a whole other side of the equation, but that's what I do with patients is, um, 
you know, I, I teach them these concepts. I teach them the consequences through mindfulness, tracking their symptoms with themselves and with their kids. You know, we'll track the, the child's focus, mood, <clears throat> um, bowel patterns, stuff like that. And then um, they'll start seeing those connections. And then with the parents, a lot of people deal with fatigue and um, or low energy, and then we'll get them mindful about that. So it's all about mindfulness. Like once you understand, um, you know, and then I also share, um, you know, how like blood sugar, for example, you know, it's not like these things are researched as much as they, as much as maybe pharmaceutical drugs are because there's not enough money in it. But the research does show that blood sugar control and glycemic load is mm -hmm. highly correlated with acne, mm -hmm. for example. So, um, you know, there's all these things that are affected by nutrition, you know, but yet how do we, how do we deal with acne? We just, we say, oh, it's just a normal thing of adolescence and, um, you know, people get it and we'll give you these topical whatever to get rid of it. Um, but acne is coming from the inside out yeah. and, and, you know, so much of what we deal with is coming from the inside out in that way. Um, yeah. So we give yeah. you a liver toxic drug that, <laughs> you know, and your liver is responsible for regulating your blood sugar, but that's fine. Yeah. Right. So, Yeah. And it, yeah. the, how do you, so when a, a family will come in, is it usually a, the parents that seek your services or how do they yeah. find you? Yeah, it's usually parents. Um, I have a network of um, physicians and stuff that will refer to me. Um, so that's primarily how I do it. And then um, they just, you know, usually if the, you know, practitioner understands functional medicine and you know, integrative naturopathic theories and stuff, and they'll, um, they'll see the importance of it. Um, you know, a patient will come in and, you know, if, if the practitioner is aware of how nutrition affects the body, then yeah. Um, people will listen to the practitioner and, you know, and they can explain like, Hey, I think what you're dealing with may be helped by better nutrition. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, but there's, there's a lot of different, I think people are more and more aware of it. I, we're probably reaching a tipping point where, um, even if people aren't practicing healthy lifestyle, they're getting more and more aware of the mm -hmm. details of, um, what could be done because they're seeing other people be really, um, you know, adamant or vocal about the benefits that they're seeing. Right. So. Um, yeah, I think they're starting to know it. And then when I talk to them, it kind of makes intuitive sense, but I'll paint a more vivid picture, like with more of the nitty gritty and a more organized fashion, like eat this and this and this, and this is why, and then try to avoid this and this and this, and this is why try to avoid this type of food because it has more of this type of toxin, stuff like that. Um, and then it's... <clears throat> It's more, it, it goes from this theoretical realm of like, I should eat better and I know I should probably be more fish oil, but whatever, you know, I don't know how to do that right. to down to like, oh, okay. So like, I understand all the concepts and he's walking me through where to get the recipes, like what to look for. And then we're slowly transitioning the family's eating habits um, more rapidly, depending on, you know, it's a personalized thing into eating in this other way. And I also help them with, you know, what they might call a difficult kid who mm -hmm. just wants to eat um, junk food, work through that. 
And yeah, it's mm-hmm. awesome. <laughs> that's often like an obstacle. Okay. So that that's why it's so exciting what you're doing, because like we mentioned before recording, you know, I'll have a, a so a couple things like one, um, the parent. So my patient will be a parent and they will maybe be in charge of the cooking. And then when I'm giving them advice on how to tweak, and I usually am, I want to ask you how you kind of approach things, but usually I'll start with maybe like adding one thing, focusing on one thing, like it'll be a bit strategic and it'll be gradual in the majority of cases just to um, reduce the overwhelm. And usually what I'll hear is, okay, now I got to make three meals because my partner eats this, my kids eat that. And Mm -hmm. now I'm like, and, and you're just adding more to my, to my plate. And in my head, I'm thinking, well, everybody could benefit from following this because this is more universal, foundational mm-hmm. health advice. That's one aspect. Then the other one is that parents will, will refer their children. And so it might be a teen or, a, you know, maybe a nine to 11 year old child who mm-hmm. has maybe behavioral problems or is suffering from a certain symptom. And now I'm tasked with trying to get them on board, mm-hmm. you know, and then relaying the recommendations to their parents and, and it becomes almost, you know, in the eyes of of that kid, it can feel like punishment. It's like, Oh, she's taking away this and now I'm doing this. And, and it's also very tricky. I think for me, at least I'm not a parent to give advice to parents because there's so much in the context that I am, I am aware that I'm unaware of. And so I'm wondering how, you know, that, in, like, do you put everyone on a program or are you more like gradual or is it, is there a specific problem in the family that you're working? Like one person in the family is dealing with a certain symptom. Or, like, Excellent questions. Those are all very important mm-hmm. to, to ask actually. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'll start with the last one. Yes. Yeah, some, sometimes the family will come because their child has focus issues or something like that. Mm-hmm. Some particular thing. Um, but the reason I focus on families and I don't want to deal with people that think that we're all just separate silos, that's not the best way to put it. I want to tell people, um, that we are, we are a network and especially a family, that unit, it, everyone's going to benefit from a healthier diet. I don't care how old you are. There are universal principles of an optimal human diet. Yes, there are differences, but I get people to that baseline and then we can tweak from there. Um, what you said about, you know, making two or three different meals, um, that is stressful. Yeah. Like that would be stressful. And again, there's, there's this baseline human diet. Everyone, you don't have to be making different meals for everyone. I mean, maybe someone is allergic to strawberries, right? So maybe you'll take the strawberries off their plate. Mm-hmm for example, but, um, you know, the basics of how I teach people to eat is universal. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's stuff that's going to give them the right amounts of vegetables, right amounts of protein, quality protein, right types of healthy fats. Um, and, you know, also another reason, um, you know, that unit, if the, if the mother and the father and the kids are all unified in this single um, you know, direction that they're going, it's so much more powerful, so much more effective. Um, and so, you know, maybe as practitioners, we need to educate them 
about that and just be real. Like, I know you're not going to want to hear this, but I'm going to need to talk to your whole family mm-hmm. and we're going to all need to be on the, on the same page. There is a benefit like with kids and teenagers to having a third party. That's not, you know, you know, nagging mom or whatever. That's always telling them to eat well, like, Oh, Talia, she's cool. She's, you know, like hip and everything. And she's also telling me the same thing, you know, it makes people, right. you know, the kids and stuff, think about it a little bit longer. So there's definitely a benefit to that, but, um, and you can, you know, it, it is okay to do one-on-one sessions, but again, like my, most of my clients, we talk as a whole family mm. and, um, I'll kind of talk, I'll, I'll begin the meeting with everyone there um, and talk about, you know, I, I show pictures, like I'm heavy with the PowerPoints and showing pictures and visuals of the food and show that with the kids there. And I'll ask the kids questions like, what, what of these foods do you like? What do you, you know, so just get them involved and then teaching the child about cause and effect um, for sugar, for example since that's so important, um, you know, this makes you feel happy at first, but then a lot of times it makes you feel sad later. Mm. And so, you know, kids will kind of get that, but kids have a smaller attention span. So, and I'll, I'll monitor that, you know, I can kind of see on the video or in person, like how, what their attention spans at like, and then I don't want them to feel like this is a major drag. So I'll cut the kids loose and then talk to the parents. Mm. Um, and um it's a good strategy yeah yeah. to get them in a little bit but you don't overwhelm them or bore them you keep it exciting and then they go off and they can play or do whatever now yeah yeah and then they're in the loop too so when mom and dad are having you know changing the diet they're like oh nick also is talking about that and so it's it's you know it is about that community you know Mm -hmm. we're not in silos um it's you know it's kind of a tribal thing, right? Like if the rest of our tribe is, is doing a certain thing. It becomes so much more easy to do that. So, yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, food, this is one thing that I don't think a lot of maybe nutritionists or nutritional programs ad- acknowledge is this idea that food is very social for human beings. And it's, you know, it's, it's interesting. I mean, this is a North American thing as well, where food is this commodified, very commercial enterprise. Like we have kids food. That's, that's very oh, unique wow, yeah. American culture, right? Like, like kids get special food. That's not. Exactly. Not exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I remember you had asked about that, like the different mm-hmm. meals for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Kids, they don't get their own food. It's, yeah. it's a social thing. We're all humans. Yeah, babies drink breast milk. <laughs> yeah. Then they go right into eating, you know. Actual food. Yeah. Actual food. <laughs> Not, uh, uh, yeah, like, you know, so uh, friends that uh, they buy packs of Mr. Noodles. Oh, these are for my kids. It's like, but this is a, a developing brain and you wouldn't, you recognize that you wouldn't feel good eating this. So there's sometimes maybe it's a, um, some misinformation that kids, can I think also this is this is another thing and you mentioned too when you're telling your story you were never overweight and so your health journey took on a different spin and often what brings people into a nutritional journey of of exploring their nutritional habits and their food intake is because they're trying to lose weight 
that's, I, you yeah. know, and, and often when I'm speaking of nutrition, I think I'm talking about nutrition with people, like just being healthier, happier, you know, a more um, fulfilled human being. And then what I hear back is what, what other people heard was we're talking about weight loss. And so sometimes maybe the, the issue with, you know, kids get different food is that kids rarely struggle with mm-hmm. being overweight, typically, you know, as a rule. Um, mm-hmm. It takes a while for nutritional deficiencies and toxicities to catch up to them. But at the same time, their brains are developing. And this is like a crucial moment where you can set them up for a lifetime. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard way too many times people say, oh, you're young, you can eat whatever you want. Right. Yeah. <laughs> or like even friends will be like, well, I can eat whatever I want. But you feel terrible after you eat that food. It's in, it's it's clearly inflammatory for you. Mm-hmm. It's not whether you gain weight or not. It's, right. you know, I'm exercising so I can eat this. But, but you know, yeah. if you care about the exercise you're doing, it's really important or, to feel properly. You, yeah, you can't outrun a poor diet. Right. For sure. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and the weight gain is, yeah, maybe a, a far along symptom of something else going on, like inflammation or chronic stress or something that may be related to food, but possibly not just calories as the only metric that people tend to care about. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And yeah. There's way too much emphasis on calories. You know, there's that epithet of um, eat less, move more. And so just do that. Simple. (laughs) Reduce the, uh, whatever. Yeah. So then you end up on those, um, those like low calorie cookies. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. And and then you start making nutritional choices based on that. Oh, I can't have an avocado because it's this many calories, but I'll have this little like granola bar thing instead. uh, Yeah. Yeah. Whereas the avocado is very healing. Right. That's low glycemic you know, really the metabolism. Um, yeah, it's, it's sad. And then people will, you know, go to the gym and maybe start counting calories burned. And it's really disheartening when you realize you have to run for five hours just to burn off that cake that you ate. (laughs) It's like, wait a second. (laughs) It's not simple, but this is hard (laughs) i have joint degeneration and no collagen to fuel it because i spent those calories on cake um and i think like so with like what was my other question that i was asking well i'm curious so so do people get is it a program typically it sounds like you have powerpoint you have certain instructions you you start with education first and then there's a plan that follows and it's sort of an an all-in thing yeah yeah um usually takes about four months to get people's habits turned around for the most part mm-hmm. um and yeah it starts off heavy with education giving people a foundational baseline of what to eat what not to eat and then it becomes clear um and then we start um working into preparing for what i call the illumination diet it's uh, an elimination diet um and that can be as involved or uninvolved in terms of like eliminating foods as the person's comfortable with. And that's where the personalization comes in. We don't want to overwhelm people, but, um, you know, the traditional elimination diet would eliminate the major, um, you know, allergens, mm-hmm. like dairy, wheat, corn, soy, eggs, nuts. Um, but also there's, you know, we're eating these healthy foods that have the right proportions 
of foods. And that's another aspect of what I teach. Um, anyway, get this, these good recipes and stuff so that um, in month three, they do that month of the elimination diet. And then, and the huge thing about that is they've kind of eased into it because the first couple months they were getting new recipes. And then third month, they're really strict. I just remind people, this isn't forever. This is a mindfulness exercise to see how you feel after a month of this. Mm-hmm. And then you can choose from there. You know, it's not like you're giving up sugar forever or anything like that. And so it works really well, kind of ease them into it. But then there's a strict period and people get really, it's like really eye-opening. Like, wow, I felt so much better. My inflammation went away. My joints feel better. Mm-hmm. My child is sleeping at night and they're paying attention in school again. And they're right. not throwing tantrums on the floor anymore. And <laughs> they're not constipated and right. um, all this stuff. And so then, it, then it, that's where it kind of becomes a no-brainer to stick onto it because, um, hey, you know, it's working. I feel a lot better. I know what to eat and what not to do. And then if they, you know, after that, if they want more coaching, that's great, you know. But generally, most people after four months are, are kind of like, I'm kind of this catalyst, you know. Mm-hmm. It's like to quickly, you know, what might take 10 years to do and by that time your kid's 10 years older <laughs> yeah, um yeah. you know it takes four months so i'm the family health catalyst how do, how do you deal with like you mentioned the the problem child or the child that doesn't respond to the, uh, the 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 picky eater or the kid that has a hard time giving up there because that's often an obstacle right my parents are like well i could never do that to my kid who you know loves sugar or loves playing Fortnite or whatever <laughs> you know yeah yeah, there's all sorts of what I believe is erroneous assumptions mm-hmm. and fears, you know, unfounded fears that we as parents have. I think a lot of it comes down to not wanting to be over controlling or overbearing mm-hmm. or cause our child pain in any way. And maybe this is subconscious, but when your kid is crying, that's a sign that they're in pain. And if they're crying because you're not giving them the food you want, you feel like an awful person. Like I'm their parent and I'm, putting my child in pain. That's what it feels like. But, um, you know, um, I, well, another thing that people might, might think is like, Oh, I'm going to cause an eating disorder by limiting what they eat. So some people literally just believe you just let them eat whatever they want, because if you, if you're controlling them, they're going to develop an eating disorder. Um, and I compare these fears to like the attitude that, Oh, I'm just going to let my kid, play with a gun or run out in the street like as a parent you know as much as your kid wants to go play in the freeway like don't let them play in the freeway (laughs) and 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 it's really because these kids they don't know the consequences if they fully if they if they did know and they could cognate what the consequences are they wouldn't want to eat that junk food Mm -hmm. but that's what we're there for as parents is to protect our kids we need, there's really, there are very real dangers out there. And one of them is the mainstream food system. It is very toxic and very damaging to kids. And I'm going to strongly assert that. Mm-hmm. And our job as parents is to protect our kids. And if we're not doing that, then, um, <clears throat> then, you know, I mean, and I'm not trying to be accusatory of parents. 
we're all trying to do our best. Like we're, we love our kids. That's why we do these things. Um, but we just don't necessarily understand the consequences. Um, and a child, you know, like I mentioned, like with this blood sugar curve, like the kid gets happy, right? When they get the sugar, but then they crash and they're less happy. Um, the kid is going to be a lot happier. Trust yeah. me. When they're eating healthier, um, their moods are going to stabilize. They're going to get interested in other things to make them happy. They'll just be calmer, you know, they'll be, um, so they're going to be happier. Also, um, a lot of times during the initial part where with the dietary change, where it's like, Oh, you know, we're not eating, um, this anymore or whatever. I don't know if I would use those terms. Um, but as we're saying no and redirecting the kids, there's a lot of psychology behind it. Yeah. Point being, um, at first the kid's going to put up a big, huge fuss, you know, maybe throw tantrums. It's going to be dramatic and everything. Um, one thing about parenting though, is, you know, loving firmness. Like if you're loving, you know, they know you're on their side. It's right. not this like, no, you can't have it and yelling at each other and stuff like yeah, that. It's, it's you're like, a bad oh, you know, I, I know you yeah. want that, but mm-hmm. you know, you'll be fine, you know, but just that assertiveness, that firmness, that consistency, pretty soon the kid sooner or later is going to realize like, oh, throwing a tantrum isn't going to work. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly they're fine with it, you know? Right. And it's because they know that you have that firm boundary with them and, you know, kids are smart and they'll, yeah. they'll be like, Oh, I'm not going to get it. Okay. Whatever. I'll go do something else. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I remember like, I have this memory of me as a young kid, I think si- sitting beside the stove, like wanting to touch the burner and my oh. grandmother's like parenting she's italian she would like whack my hand away no i'm gonna touch it and so then i touch it learn my lesson and so it's sort of like that it's like you know but i was obviously probably screaming and being a brat trying to touch the burner Mm -hmm. so i think you know it's interesting what you say i mean i also when i'm working with parents and their kids um well, first of all, it's hard. That's what I want to say. It's hard for us to even notice that something might be related to blood sugar. It's hard for an adult to, to put that together. And that's that's why all of the health education that you introduce everyone to, all the knowledge that we can actually make those connections. Because if we made those connections easily, it would probably, like you said, be a no-brainer. So what you're helping is to pair those things. Like your 4 p.m. crash is related to what you had for breakfast or what you didn't have for breakfast. And Mm -hmm. nobody really knows that. I mean, most of the people that come into my office have no idea that that's going on and you have to sort of paint it out and then, and then introduce someone to an experiment where they try following your, your way for a while and observing how things shift. And you even, it sounds like do a lot of focus on getting someone to the place where they can even pay attention in a meaningful way to even understand what's changing in their body, because so Mm -hmm. many of us aren't aware how we feel. Mm-hmm. And that's, I had a conversation recently where someone was like, you know, well, so many people just eat junk food, let's say, and, and they are fine. And I'm like, well, a lot of people don't know what it feels like to be well, truly. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Um, and then when you start thinking of a child, when I, I've said to a, a parents before is, um, because I think there was a parent who her son would follow like a pretty healthy diet at home, but then go and visit friends or cousins and come back having eaten a bunch of sugar, gluten, things that she recognized weren't that great for him. 
And it was like, well, you know, he's, he's okay afterwards. I'm not really noticing a huge shift. But mm-hmm. one thing I, I said was, you know, it's hard enough for us to recognize how we feel. And then mm-hmm. when it's a child, you're often looking for a behavioral change, which is n- another level of the shift of your internal state. So he might come home feeling kind of brain foggy, generally crappy, mm-hmm. but may not say anything. Mm-hmm. There's motivation to not say anything oh, if yeah. you want if you want the sugar, <laughs> you know. Yeah. But a kid may say something offhand, like, oh, my stomach hurts, or you might notice a tantrum, or you might notice an emotional outburst, but maybe not, maybe it doesn't get to that point, because it takes enough inflammation to build up to that point. So it's tricky to watch for that Mm -hmm. in kids as well. And it's really hard for them to make the connection. Um, So part of the journey is to like, allow those connections to be made. And so yeah, a kid may not be able to sort of self regulate their food intake in the context of all of these different um, food additives and chemicals and, and added sugars and all the things that are hijacking their own internal wisdom, you know? Exactly. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. Like just you saying all that, I'm having flashbacks of my own childhood. (laughs) (laughs) I remember jumping on a trampoline with my friend and suddenly just having to lay down and like, Oh my God, I'm so hungry. You know? Yeah. And I'm like, do you have any food? You know? And I, at the time I was just like, Oh yeah, I was hungry. But now looking back, I'm like, that was like a low blood sugar thing. Like mm-hmm. that was the crash. I experienced that. But as a kid, what am I supposed to think? Oh, I'm hungry. You know? Yeah. yeah. And, and then I'll, you know, I had like eczema. I had, like I said, IBS. And I just thought that's how I was, you know, I had no idea that had anything to do with what I was eating, you know, yeah. I was eating, you know, ramen, macaroni and cheese and, you know, who knows what. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and again, like even now, like even as I got older and honed everything in even more, um, you know, I do recognize if I, you know, start eating more starchy foods and sugary foods, then I I do get that like mm-hmm. hunger, you know. And whereas if I'm eating more cleanly and more, you know, veggies and healthy fats and stuff and protein, then I you know I get hungry, but I'm not ravished. And well, you're ready to like murder someone <laughs> for their bagel or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. that's another thing I teach people is like you know when your blood sugar is going up and down it's super hard to um have the willpower to not stop at wendy's or whatever mm-hmm. right and grab something because like you're so hungry and right. then, yeah um, well yeah i mean yeah. then you just become i mean if you're hungry there's a saying i i'm my mind is like totally blanking on it but it was something something maybe it's nietzsche talks about uh, I'm, I'll find it for the show notes but um uh it's you know something about the rational man and hunger like there you know there's no such thing um well ultimately that like yeah you become reduced to food when you're hungry so you're all limbic system but also there's no energy for your prefrontal cortex so this idea of like decision fatigue mm-hmm. your patients will talk about you know mm-hmm. or just feeling 
blah at the end of the day, not, not being able to transition from work to something that's fulfilling where they sort of work and then they just recover from work doing something kind of mindless. And then they go back to work the next day and Mm -hmm. being on this treadmill is as often that we've run out of steam for our brain and we can't make decisions. We can't engage in something else. We don't have the motivation to like get out our paint canvas and that kind of thing. And, um, you know, and a lot of that has to do with, and so people feel like it's their willpower. They're, they're sort of moral failing, but really they're just out mm-hmm. of energy. Their brain is out of energy. Exactly. Yeah. That's huge. Yeah. We, yeah. yeah that moral failing concept is interesting because so much of how we function is, yeah. is physiological. Um, and, and that, again, you know, that makes me think of my childhood, you know, with like I had social anxiety and I, I thought that was such a moral failing and like I was a bad person and I was weak and, you know, so these, and, and I, and it was related to that brain inflammation and stuff like that. Um, what was my train of thought? Um, anyway, <laughs> well, was, I felt like it was a moral, moral failing yeah. and, um, but just, you know, getting, um, the body healthy, everything functions so much better like so much happier um i really like that car analogy you used earlier like you have this ferrari and you don't know how to drive it Mm -hmm. Um, i i like to compare the drivers like your psychology and your thought patterns and more of like your inner decisions because you're the driver Mm -hmm. but what if the ferrari has a flat tire or what if the spark plugs are missing like that's the physical thing like that's like your physical body um or the alignment's off and you keep going into the rut like we think that it's the driver, right? We blame the driver, but really the car is what needs to be fixed. And that's the physiology. That's, you know, the physiology has a huge impact on the functioning mm-hmm. of a person day to day, your ability to focus, your ability to recuperate, ability to be creative, your ability to stay cool. You know, so it helps relationships when your physiology works better because you're in a better mood. Yeah. I mean, and that's the other thing is like the meltdowns at 4 p.m. for parents as well. Like a lot of my, um, let's say like 40 to 50 year olds, mainly let's say female patients deal with that, like feeling very irritable with their family. And again, that's another blood sugar thing or just, you know, running out of fuel. And we associate that, yeah, with the driver. Mm-hmm. said. It makes sense. Like if you're and when you're learning to drive your Ferrari, you're not confident in it, right? So you're a child, you have social anxiety. So you may have had one experience of being really anxious or something went wrong socially. Mm-hmm. And we, we encode that we remember it. And then we, we create a story and we create an identity around it because now mm-hmm. we do. And then it happens again. So you're the Ferrari driver, you're driving into the ditch oh, I'm a terrible driver. I'm going to head into the ditch every single time I, cr- I go around this corner. And then it keeps happening. Mm-hmm. And it started off as, yeah, the steering wheel was out of alignment, right? Mm-hmm. And now it becomes part of the identity and part of, we, we start, we, then you might get a diagnosis. Now you might be prescribed a medication for it or go to special therapy for it. And all of that might be useful, but you still have to correct the, the steering alignment <laughs> eventually. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause if your baseline anxiety level is higher because you have inflammation or your blood sugar is not right. Down, it's just going to set you up for those same patterns. Right. Um, 
get that anxiety down and then it becomes a lot easier to overcome those traumas yeah. and have the thought. And yeah, it's, it's complicated, but with kids, you know, kind of getting back to that, um, they are under development, their bodies are developing. Insulin is probably the master hormone. So if blood sugar is not being controlled, the child's hormones are going to be out of control. And, um, you know, I'm, I, it's really important for those kids to go through puberty, you know, having balanced hormones, um, for everything for their body development, brain development. And so, I mean, the effects are so far reaching, um, you know, schizophrenia, um, and other schizophreniform disorders are associated with, um, you know, immunological inflammation. Um, and that in turn, again, is related to nutrition um, and lifestyle factors. Um, we really want to get that microbiome healthy. And the only way to do that is for the kid to eat vegetables. Right. And there's no way around it. And, um, but not that we want to find a way around it because, like I said, it's worth it. You know, it becomes right. a no brainer when you understand the consequences of that. Um, yeah. You also have, like you mentioned, and I think this is relevant to bring up is, so you, you have experience working with eating disorders and you mentioned, you know, one of the fears is that people, like there is a lot of talk around orthorexia and I'm aware of the conversation around shame and lifestyle habits. And I did an Instagram post on this about, you know, not into restriction in that sense where yeah. it's like taking things away from you, depriving mm-hmm. you. But I am personally in favor of quitting things, in, whether it be an elimination diet, like I quit coffee, we were talking about. And not because it's like, you know, necessarily some like self-punishment. It's more of an exploration to see where these things fit in my life. Like, Mm -hmm. is gluten inflammatory? The only way I'm going to find out is with an elimination diet. Is coffee helping me or harming me? Let's cut it out for a while, see, and then I gain some control around my relationship with it. But I think, I don't know. I mean, I don't quite have my finger on this, but I see a lot of people interpreting that as like, as shame and it's okay to have the ice cream. I think what often happens is there's a lot of shame around food and this sense of feeling out of control and we're at the bottom of an ice cream tub. We feel intense guilt and shame Mm -hmm. or we can't get our kids to um, eat healthy and Mm -hmm. we feel into, or the idea maybe that our, our child may be suffering health consequences of, of their, of something going on with their diet is shame inducing. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering with that connection or how you might, um, you know, assuage the concerns of you know f- focusing on food leading to disordered eating especially mm-hmm. when people are young yeah yeah so it's all about the emotional valence and energy behind conversations about it um so what comes to mind is your your grandma just no don't do that right because um, it's very catholic right you have to like shame people <laughs> if you want to get them to change their behavior yeah <laughs> Exactly. And maybe that's also part of it is like, we have that in our, in our history. It's like, well, I, anytime someone wanted to motivate me to do something, they use shame based tactics. So anytime someone else is motivating me with a, it may be self-compassionate, 
or maybe compassionate, but I'm going to see that as I'm going to connect that to shame because it's mm-hmm. connected in my mind or in my experience, but that could be part uh, of it too. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's, there's very much a negative um, energy behind a lot of this um, right. eating concept. And I understand that. Um, so very much like your grandma was like batting your hand away. A lot of girls, especially um, literally will probably have parents that are like, don't eat that. You know what I mean? Don't eat that cake. In your stomach. Yeah. Yeah. That's bad for you. That's too much food. Yeah. Yeah. That's too much food. Um, And that's why I emphasize with the parents that um, you, you need to maintain that empathy. Like that is massively important. Like it, this is a loving thing. You love your kid. Your kid knows that you always love them. And I think that's in question with um, a lot of girls that get mm. um, eating disorders. Mm-hmm. It, um, it becomes this self-worth thing, you know, and I need to lose weight to um, look better. Can you hear that fly? No. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I hope that's not on the podcast. Um, so, yeah, so there's this very, you know, it, it becomes about their self-worth. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Instead mm-hmm. of, I love you, I want you to be happy, so I'm feeding you foods that are going to um, support your growth and development and make you happy. Um, so... Which is honestly how we should maybe talk to ourselves when undergoing a similar journey, right? Whether we be trying to encourage our kids or not, which is Mm -hmm. an important distinction, actually. I like that because I think maybe that's what I'm seeing where someone is calling something orthorexia. Mm -hmm. It seems to be associated with body modification versus Mm -hmm. just health. Like Mm -hmm. it's not, you know, so not consuming cow dairy. In my experience, it's it's been a process of trial and error, continual trial and error. Mm-hmm. And yeah, sometimes feeling like I couldn't say no to the tiramisu, but then experiencing specific symptoms afterwards or noticing, mm-hmm. being mm-hmm. aware of how it's starting to interact in my body. Some of that's knowledge-based, some of that's experience-based, and then paying attention over time and coming to the conclusion that this isn't it's not worth it to have it. Mm-hmm. And it's right. not, you know, which is ultimately where you want people to arrive at, right? If, if, and, or they may say like, it's worth it. I'm going to keep eating dairy. Like, I don't yeah. care. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. And if the, if the mom and dad, if the kid knows that their mom and dad love them mm. and they're not judging them about for wanting to eat sugar, I mean, that's normal. Yeah. yeah. Um, and even, you know, if we, yeah, there's so much to it actually. Um, but also, you know, there, there is another pitfall of orthorexia is it does, it can increase your anxiety, right? If, if, um, and, and let's face it, it is work to change your dietary habits, like, you know, to just go with the flow and eat what everyone else is eating yeah. uh, in the short term, especially it's easier, you know, um, but, and then it is harder to, to change the dietary habits. But once you're in a flow and you know, you have the knowledge and you have made the transition, it's pretty easy. Mm-hmm. You know, it's easy to maintain it, but you could be too extreme about it. And 
you know, stress excessively about any minor slip up. I mean, let's say you're traveling and there, you don't have access to what you would normally eat. Um, I'd say it's okay, you know, to eat, you know, not ideally, you know, um, and, you know, I'm at a place where, you know, I'm self-motivated. It doesn't take a ton of willpower for me to eat the way I eat because just because I know the consequences, a lot of people think I'm super disciplined and I'm like, "Mm, I would argue with that. It's just like, I kind of know the consequences. I did the work to be mindful and conscientious about the consequences. Now it's just self-motivating, but, um, um, but it is important, I think, to go through that phase of strictness. You know, that's why the, the elimination diet is super important. Um, I think it's important to go through that so that you have the mindfulness and awareness of what the consequences are. Mm-hmm. And then after that, it's, it's self-motivating and you can, you know, cheat occasionally and do, um, you know, eat stuff that you normally wouldn't. That's fine. So we're finding that happy balance of like, not wanting someone to be excessively stressed um, because that can cause eating disorders if um, the parent is, um, you know, just excessively controlling and it comes from this external place of, you know, mom is making me not eat these things. And when I go to school, she's making it so I can't eat what the other kids are eating. I think um, you want to be careful about that. You know, you, you don't want the kid to feel um, super different from their peers. Um, mm. I think if kids are, if they have a baseline healthy diet, their physiology is going to be able to handle those um, things without um, too much trouble. But once the child, once they're immunologically compromised or metabolically compromised, um, the consequences are going to be much more real. For example, if they do develop a dairy allergy, then you are going to need to be more strict. Whereas if they haven't developed that, then maybe they can eat. Yeah. Um, right. I mean, there's better forms of dairy and worse forms of dairy, but you know what I mean? Like, um, if they're having a good baseline diet at home, it might be counterproductive to be over controlling. And that, that's a major concept in parenting is, you know, there's the helicopter parent that's controlling everything and that's going to cause issues in the child. Then there's the other extreme of the parent that doesn't care at all or doesn't, doesn't do anything. We're trying to find that middle ground. What's that? Just that just says like, Oh, you want Doritos for dinner? Go for it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 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 We're trying to find that golden mean area. There's a few things there. So yeah, the, the period of strictness is, like what's the goal there is to gain clarity. It's not to see if you can do it or see how, you know, how much control you have over yourself or if you're a good person, it's just like, we're going to take it away so that we gain clarity Mm -hmm. over how these foods interact with the body. That's all. And after the period is done, then we can decide what to do about it. Right. Which I think is a really important distinction because it gets confused where a lot of patients will come to me and they've seen another practitioner before. Maybe they've tried an elimination diet on their own. And they're like, oh, or they've done a test. It's often a test, actually. And they're like, oh, I can't eat almonds. It came up on the test, but I eat almonds. And so there's this, this experience of failure. And mm-hmm. however, they kind of connect to that failure. But it's this thing of like, I got this test or I did a diet and I kind of just ate it again. And mm-hmm. I feel 
I don't know if I feel different. And so the clarity didn't get, wasn't achieved that the purpose of the assignment wasn't clear. So they didn't get the clarity and they also just feel like they couldn't do it or it was too difficult or wasn't worth it or, or that they failed in some way. Um, and I like when you said, you know, when you go on vacation, okay, it's going to be impossible to avoid gluten because you're going on vacation to India. Okay, well, just pay attention when you're eating something with gluten in it. Uh, let's use this as an exercise because our goal is clarity. Let's just focus and, and, and observe what you feel when you eat chapati <laughs> or whatever, <laughs> you know? Um, wow. Have you gone to India? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I use it as an example because it, it's easy to be gluten free like but if you have celiac disease i've had friends that went who had celiac disease and had to come home early because there's just i mean you're so sensitive to any sort of gluten and there's obviously cross-contamination in, in certain cultures that will use wheat so in vietnam yeah. it was easy to be gluten free although the word for for cake bread including gluten-free bread made of rice is all ben so mm -hmm. it's sandwich so um it's like hard to ask if something is wheat or rice or, but they'll make like rice waffles, you know? So that was easy. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. But to be celiac is, is different. Right. And, and if you're on a complete elimination diet and you really want to take something out to see it's difficult, but, um, but I like that of, you know, being very clear, what's the goal of this exercise. Um, and then yeah. the other part of, you know, self-compassion and, and then empathy when you're trying to guide someone else through it. Um, and I also like your point about the, the self-motivation because, yeah, to me, it isn't restriction either if I don't have gluten. It's, it's this understanding I'm not going to feel good after and I don't want to not feel good. It's like if someone was like, hey, let's just stay up all night and watch, uh, binge watch this show. I'd be like, well, I'm going to feel terrible tomorrow. So I... Uh, even though it's sort of appealing, it's not appealing enough that I would do it. And so it doesn't feel like a hurdle. Yeah. You know? Um, but I wonder if you have tips on that because that's a common thing is when someone goes to a party or they are now interacting with their mother-in-law and, and certain family members, like we talked about before we recorded about this, the, the community, right? Like the tribe where we, part of human nature is wanting to connect to who we associate with mm -hmm. and, and eat and behave in the way that we, that makes us feel connected to the, to the people that we associate as our community. And when you start making radical changes, which may just may be more in line with human biology, and what we should be eating, but is very different from a society when you're in a society that eats, you know, Doritos for dinner sometimes. And now you're, you're following this new plan how do you, how do you, you know, make recommendations when someone is now reintegrating into their, the other spheres of their community that might not be accepting of their new lifestyle changes? Yeah. Um, so years ago, I wrote a little booklet that I share with my clients called Eating Mindfully. And, um, you know, for example, the party that you mentioned, um, you know, there is a point where, you know, if you're constantly feeling deprived, that's not a good thing. But if you're mindful about it, um, you can have that declare or whatever it might be. Mm. I, but my point, instead of feeling guilty about it or bad, I'm like, if you do that, 
good for you. Like go all in, mm-hmm. enjoy it. Like sit mm-hmm. down, eat it slowly, like savor it. Um, yeah. Because what your mind is looking for is that enjoyment. Mm-hmm. And you can eat um, something mindlessly and get just a fraction of the enjoyment out of it because you're distracted by your self-loathing or the stress of like, Oh my God, I shouldn't be eating this. Um, and then what's going to happen? Well, you only got this much enjoyment. You're going to want to eat another one so you can get a little more, Right. you know? So my, you know, point is like, if you enjoy it, if you're mindful, if you're present when you're eating it, you can get that full enjoyment and just eat a lot less of it. And I'm not about, restriction but around stuff like that like there is a big difference between eating between eating one eclair and eating a whole plate right Mm -hmm. and um and again you know there's there's all the other aspects of mindfulness like having gone through the elimination diet and being aware of the the effects and everything um Mm. and but you know the other side of the coin of being mindful like you were saying is you know after you do eat whatever you do eat like keep being aware of how you feel later. And, um, and that's the other side of the coin. And when you do that, you know, I think just mindfulness brings this awareness and the awareness makes decisions pretty easy Mm -hmm. because you're aware of it now. Mm -hmm. Um, whereas a lot of times people are like, Oh, you know, I shouldn't be eating this. And then they're shoveling them in their mouth. And then it's like, Oh, I'm going to gain so much weight. And then, you know, there's and you tell your subconscious that that's what that's that's gonna happen yeah uh um there's another aspect of your question Mm -hmm. trying to remember the um yeah like navigating the party is a social situation or that you know other people may be attempt to sabotage maybe with good intentions but i'm thinking like the mother-in-law that's like oh what do you mean the your kid is not eating white flour anymore. Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So again, like having a good, um, like loving, Mm. you know, disarming attitude about it. It's very good. Like, Oh yeah. You know, he, um, he feels so much better when he doesn't, the, the, rather than saying, oh, those are bad, because that focuses on the bad food, mm. you want to focus on the good. Like, oh, he feels so much better when when he eats these other things, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, he's just so much happier. And so it's a good thing for him. Mm. And he, you know, mm-hmm. um, it's really helping him out. And who, you know, who's going to feel okay giving a kid, you know, something bad after that if they know it's going to make them feel bad? Right. You know what I mean? Versus, oh, that food is so bad for you. And then the other person's going to think, well, there's no harm in eating it once. Um, and maybe there's not. You know, I'm not a Puritan. I think, um, you know, again, after you've gone through that period of mindfulness, I think you can make more, mm. you know, choices and, and kind of monitor how you feel. Do, do you feel really deprived? Well, you know, what's under that? Mm. Maybe you do need to find a treat that you enjoy like dark chocolate or Mm. you know something Mm. Uh, yeah there's you know there's a lot to it and you know as i'm coaching people it's you know it's identifying what 
you know, it's like this psychological jujitsu, right? Totally. Yeah, totally. <laughs> mind is like a maze and we're yeah. trying to just like navigate all of it. Um, yeah. And, you know, life. Is- I like that though, when you say, I mean, he feels so much better without it because there's nothing you can really, you can't really argue with that. It's, you're not mm-hmm. focusing on the food where leaves open. Well, you know, they did a study and organic food is not more nutritious. So who cares? And it's like, now you're in a debate when you just mm-hmm. say, you know what, this is something that we've done and, and we all feel a lot better. And the teachers are commenting. It's like, well, mm-hmm. there's a lot of room to, to fight with that or to engage with that, you know? Um, yeah. And my kids, um, you know, I have four kids, the younger two are younger. So they'll go to parties. They're not necessarily aware as much. Um, so there's a few things I do, like I'll try to feed them healthy food beforehand. And when you're not hungry, like I feel deprived, I don't restrict them. I don't say, Mm. you know, can't have the cake or the ice cream at the party. I just try to feed them ahead of time and then let them go. Um, and even at home, we'll have like gluten-free cake and stuff like that for birthdays. Um, and there's a huge difference between having had a healthy meal with a balance of lots of veggies and healthy protein and, um, and then eating the cake versus, you know, just being hungry and starting with the cake. Yeah. Um, and that's, that is like, yeah, that's one thing I will sometimes tell my patients. I'm like, have a protein and produce, um, when you want to binge on the, like, whatever it is, president's choice, ketchup chips or whatever the specific thing is, um, uh, have protein produce first, whatever it is, one olive, one piece of Turkey, and then have the chips. And just to see, because maybe you don't, maybe it's not the chips. Maybe that's just what you associate with restoring your blood sugar levels or getting some, you know, making up for uh, a calorie deficit that you had throughout the day that you always make up for around 5 p.m. Like your body's accustomed to getting a thousand calories at that time to make up for a deficit that was incurred. Um, and so, yeah, that's a good strategy is to not go somewhere hungry, not to, because one, you know, there's a the classic <laughs> story I tell a lot, like a patient who she's like at 10 a.m., I'm at my office and I'm eating my healthy snack and I know what I, and I'm, and I'm, and I have conviction and I know that my day is going to go well and I'm going to make healthy choices. And then at 4 PM they put donuts out in my office and I just go to town on the donuts and I, and then everything kind of goes out the window after that. And I feel bad about myself. And it was like, well, at 4 PM, when did you have lunch? You had lunch at 12. You're hungry at four. And then someone puts out donuts and, no homo sapien that's hungry is going to say no to like <laughs> this like smorgasbord of fructose and, and glucose to like get, you know, to feed yourself. So um, having a snack around that time might be a good strategy. Understanding that it's not like willpower in so much as it may be actually blood sugar. Um, mm-hmm. And with kids too, it's, you know, I had this interesting experience a few years ago. I quit alcohol. So I, I was, um, I, I wasn't like that much into alcohol, but I cut it out completely and I cut out sugar and I'd get invited to parties around Christmas time. So I was getting invited to these Christmas parties, birthday parties around that time. And I'd go first with a little bit of anxiety. Like are people gonna, people don't really bother you if you're not drinking usually because they think like maybe you're 
they don't really want to know the story. So, um, you know, but uh, I noticed that I'd have an expiry time on my time at a party. I'd, I'd go for about two hours and I'd talk to people and then I'd sort of feel like, okay, I'm, I'm good. I'm going to go home now. And what I realized was I, the sugar and alcohol would keep me there longer. It was sort of like, um, give me that like continual dopamine hit to kind of keep me at the party. And that's what the, after those two hours, what it was about. And Mm. without those substances, it was able to sort of just see what, whether I was enjoying myself or not purely. Mm-hmm. And then I'm actually tired and my tiredness is overwhelming my sense of enjoyment at this part. I'm going to go home. And at first it was like, Oh, I don't know if that's a good thing. And then after it was like, no, it's just, you're done here. Like it was very interesting. And I wouldn't have noticed that if I was essentially medicating in some way, right? Like, mm-hmm. Oh, I'm here yeah. for the sugar. Oh, they're bringing out another snack. Um, yeah. And so I think, I don't know how that relates to kids, but it's interesting too. It's like maybe now parties become just the party and they mm. get to go. They're not going hungry. So maybe they get to enjoy the cake just yeah. for the cake, you know? Yeah. And, yeah just um, for the cake and then have fun. And yeah. they're not physiologically hungry. So they, you know, that's not the emphasis. You know, it's not the cake and stuff. They're not yeah. hungry, you know? Certainly not like you know in a blood sugar slump, right? And then eat half the cake, right? Um, like after you know, like <laughs> probably like after a birthday party, there's usually like some kind of meltdown or like low thing, or somebody starts acting out just because probably so much everyone's like insulin is now at an all time high and their blood sugar is probably tanking. Yeah, and, uh, you know. Another, another thing, um, this is loosely related is um the fact that hunger is the best sauce mm-hmm. meaning if the right. kid, what, what the kid eats when they're hungry is going to taste extra good mm-hmm. and so when the child is hungry that's that's a really good time like if we're trying to change their taste buds because people's tastes change according to what you eat right like at first the kid prefers what they've been eating because that's what they've been eating that's what their brain associates with food and nourishment so they have all these associations and tastes we're trying to change the diet um they don't necessarily they're not used to these new foods they don't have a taste for them it doesn't mean they can't Mm. you know but and that's another thing we have to teach parents is you know they think oh my kid doesn't like that and then that's the end of the story so i can't feed them that Mm. um i'm like wait a second you know they can they can, I, I don't like to use the word learn, but they, they can come to love it eventually. And again, it's through that exposure. But when I say hunger is the best sauce, what I'm saying is like when they're hungriest, like in the morning, what you feed them, their brain is going to make strong associations with, I like this. Because yeah. mm-hmm. when I ate this last time, it satiated my hunger. Mm-hmm. And so they're going to start liking what you feed them, especially when they're hungry. And that's a big reason why before they go to a party i like to make sure they're not hungry right so they're not like oh my god i love that <laughs> yeah right because it regulated me in addition to tasting great yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. this is good um, yeah yeah Any so we get kids to enjoy liver you know liver is a superfood mm-hmm. um a lot of parents are like i never eat liver i'm not gonna feed my kid liver and i just i'm like well, what if it's super healthy for them and they enjoy it and babies love it i remember like being obsessed with pate it was the most delicious thing ever 
because it's so nutrient. I mean, that's our taste buds were designed to get us the most nutritious stuff ultimately. Mm-hmm. And that got hijacked. Right. But mm-hmm. you give, there's actually been studies. If you give babies a bunch of different foods, they'll, they'll um, balance their diet out over time just based on what their taste buds are telling them to eat. And, but that, but that is, only works if yeah. it's whole foods. Right? Exactly. Yeah. If it's Doritos, it's game over because those foods have been engineered for, there's a book called the Dorito effect. That's about that. But mm. um, there's foods that have been engineered to hijack those taste receptors, pleasure centers. Um, I mean, where would we have gotten sugar from fresh ripe fruit, high in nutrients? Now you get it from everything, right? So right. your body yeah. is, you can't let that guide you unless you sort of wipe the slate clean. Yeah. Like, you know, ancestrally before mm. um, modern food processing, sugary foods were really healthy because it was yeah. the berries. It was super loaded totally. with antioxidants, you yeah. know, so that maybe that's why. We, apple. Yeah. Yeah. Apples, you know, things that are really good for us. Vitamin C, you know. Yeah. Some of the best sources of vitamin C are, you know, we're slightly sweet. So, yeah, there's a reason we seek it out. But yeah, like you said, the, with modern science, we hi- have hijacked that. And um, and so, you know, the concept of intuitive eating is extremely important and it's valid. Like that's basically that the baby has an intuition of what it needs mm-hmm. to eat. But intuitive eating doesn't work if you're mm-hmm. eating processed food. Mm-hmm. Like throwing a wrench in that intuition. Yeah. So. Yeah. And when blood sugar is unstable, it's difficult to be intuitive. Yeah. I love the concept of of intuitive eating. Um, But I think there's different stages. Like I see a lot of people embrace intuitive eating after a period of very restrictive dieting and they go, they eat a lot of donuts and that kind of thing, which is, you know, we're snapshotting that that's, that may be actually very healing to that person in that moment, in that snapshot in time to get to, to replenish calories in a very mm-hmm. fast way by eating mm-hmm. a, a ton of donuts. But I think once, you know, intuitive eating seems to be like a journey that you can't just take a snapshot and, and declare that that's what it is. But I think at least for me, I was able to get to a place of intuitive eating from eating whole foods only. And that will all always be hijacked when I eat sugar, like a lot of refined sugar. So that was also, but that was also an intuitive mindful realization that I came mm-hmm. to on my own. It wasn't because I read it or someone told me don't eat sugar. Cause it'll hijack your intuitive eating. It was something that <laughs> was like experienced directly. So, um, but yeah, mm-hmm. this is, yeah, it's, it's great. Like these tips on mindful eating, intuitive eating, combating guilt and shame, I think are all really relevant topics when we talk about nutrition. It's unfortunate we have to, cause it's really just, I mean, back in hunter gatherer times, there was no, we just ate <laughs> you know, right. what, what you yeah. could. <laughs> and, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we we have to consciously do what we just naturally did in yeah. the past, and at, no wonder modern life is so stressful. Yeah, but I think that that's that's a theme of what uh, I forget who said this, but the, like all modern sort of biohacking, like cold therapy and blue light blockers and sunlight exposure, is all just stuff that we naturally had as, yeah. a, as our human birthright, and now we have to kind of recreate it. <laughs> it's like technology solves the problem of technology. Exactly. Uh, 
Yeah, we're just layering more technology onto our technology. Yeah, so we have like cold plunges, but meanwhile, like a few months ago, it was like minus twenty out here. It's like it's like I could just sit on my balcony with a t-shirt. Like I don't need to buy a cold uh, plunge. <laughs> but but um, yeah. Any so any last thoughts, Nick? This is great. This has been a great talk. I mean, one thing that yeah, I, I just wanted to share, kind of throw in there is, um, you know, you mentioned the social. Um, setting where you the alcohol and sugar. Um, you know, another thing I wanted to point out is that sugar does increase serotonin levels. Yeah. Uh, but so does social connection and support. And I think, you know, my theory is that we do tend to kind of binge on sugar and stuff at night. Partly, I mean, there's a lot of reasons, but I think one of them is, is I think we're so isolated in modern life. I mean, especially with COVID and stuff, but even before yeah. COVID, um, we, we want that, we want that serotonin, which normally I think traditionally we would get from surrounding ourselves with loved ones and socializing and, you know, it releases the oxytocin and the serotonin. Um, but instead we have, you know, our engineered sugary, salty, you know, unhealthy snacks. Great. And those are giving us like some sort of surrogate um, comfort, you know. And so that's just another thing to throw in there in, in terms of how all this is kind of messed up, you know. Yeah. But that's what I'm trying to do is, you know, get people to understand these things and then have a roadmap and an understanding of how to implement it. Mm. And, you know, I, I do want to emphasize that life is a whole lot better on the other side. <laughs> Yeah. You know, once you're aware of all these things and eating healthy, um, I think people focus on the deprivation and get afraid of, oh, no, I can't eat my favorite foods anymore. And I just have to reassure you, like, you know, if you're, once you've done this work of being aware of it and doing these experiments, it becomes self-motivating and you won't want to eat that stuff. Yeah. You know, so... And it, it's good, yeah, to think of food inclusion, like anytime I'm sharing a low FODMAP diet with someone, which gets results very quickly. So it's easy, you know, ultimately when you're starting because you get benefit right away if you're experiencing IBS symptoms. Um, I'll, I show the restricted list and you see people are like, oh, no. And then you show the here's the low FODMAP foods that you can focus on. They're like, oh, I like mm -hmm. that. So automatically there's a frame shift when you focus on what you're eating versus what you're taking mm -hmm. out because it becomes mm -hmm. overwhelming when you're like, I don't, I can't eat that or that. What am I going to have for, what am I, what am I going to have for breakfast? And when you just have a list of breakfasts and recipes and things to focus on, it becomes a lot easier mm -hmm. psychologically. Yeah. yeah. And that's interesting too, because if you think about it, the Western diet is actually extremely limited. Right. Like we, I can't remember some massive proportion of our calories ultimately come from corn. Yeah. And well, isn't it uh 65% of the calories come from um, seed oils? Wow. Yeah. So they, like, we're, yeah, like, they're like completely Western, nutrient avoid. Western not even diet is yeah. permutations <laughs> of like seed oils, corn, yeah. you know, dairy and, and wheat, right? Like that's yeah. probably like yeah. 70 to 80 or more percent of what we're eating. And it like ultimately is extremely narrow, but 
it's all modified to create, turn it into a donut here and then macaroni here, you know? Yeah. And yeah. It's like I had toast for breakfast. Here. Then I had <laughs> pasta for lunch and then, but it's all yeah. wheat, but that's the problem. So it's to reframe that as, you know, okay, here's, and also meaningful substitutions I find are helpful. Like let's switch out the wheat pasta for one of these legume pastas now that they make, which are, I think most of them that I find are, are pretty clean and then it's a protein source. And so if you just want a quick pasta night, cause you, you got stuff to get to after school and all this stuff and you just got to get food and everyone, then that may be a really helpful solution or, um, you know, what's a snack you can have, like these kind of things can be helpful. Um, yeah. So it's good to have the guidance. I think that's really important. Like you were saying to be able to guide people through the process and that seems to set them up for success. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's super exciting. And again, it's, yeah. it's super important. Our, you know, I get passionate about our future generations. I mean, I haven't even gone into the metabolic damage and immunological damage that our kids are facing because of the environment. Yeah. You know? the toxins and then the food and um, everything. And so it's, it's really important. And, you know, these kids, they're developing, their organs are developing, their brains are developing, and it's, it's setting up a foundation that they're going to be living with for the rest of their, their lives. And our job as parents, like I said, is to protect them. Um, you know, I'm not trying to stress anyone out, but I am trying to motivate about the difference that you can have in your child's life by getting the nutrition squared away because the consequences can be um, either really good or really bad, depending on the direction we go. Thank you, Nick. This is great. (laughs) 